Downloads of this show are available at Podomatic.com or the Podomatic mobile app. Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, August 21st, 2018, and we're in a little bit of mourning because we just lost the Queen last week, the Queen of Soul, so um, I want to remember her with one of my favorite songs of hers. We're back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul, with Until You Come Back to Me, That's What I'm Gonna Do, from Let Me Into Your Life in 1973. I get chills every time I hear her sing that part, how I'm gonna knock on your door, rap on your window pane. I just love it. They they don't make songs like that anymore. I get It's old school. You know how old school this song is? It was originally recorded by Stevie Wonder, who was also a co-writer of this song. 
back in 1967, but he didn't release his version until after this, Aretha's version, which went to number one on Billboard's R&B and number three on their Hot 100. Of course it was. Of course it was number one and number three. And with this song, Aretha became the first artist in Top 100 history at that point to have hit songs in slots 1 through 10 on both charts. Of course she was. She's the Queen of Soul. And to learn who the other only four artists were that achieved this, you got a GTS, kids. Google that shit. And rest in peace, power, love, and light, Queen of Soul. Well... We have a lot of show for you today with a fantastic, dare I say, wonderful guest artist who chose this song to open this episode. And as pink as a sheet 
We are back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Wow, we couldn't have been further apart in genres and styles with those two songs, right? You just heard Aerosmith with Cherry Pink from their Nine Lives album back in 1977. Two masters of their game, both different parts. Okay, kids, let's uh, stop with the waiting around and get right to it because now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Everybody, welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. Woohoo! And let's just get started. I'm just so excited to welcome producer, teacher, entrepreneur, storyteller, coach, burlesque performer, and so much more, Cindy Freeman. Hey. <laughs> Hi there. Hi, I had to do the Carmen Fungal thing. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. I love Carmen. Blast, blast from the past. Yeah, you hosted one of my shows. Yes, and we'll get to that in a little bit. So as you can probably see, Cindy and I have known each other for a sprinkle of years. Mm-hmm. How and where did we meet? All right, there's two potentials. I remember meeting you at the Liar Show because you were wearing the most amazing shoes ever. And I kept on saying... To myself, who is this woman with this incredible fashion sense? And eventually I said something about your shoes and where do you shop? And we had a long talk about that. So I remember oh, that wow. vividly. But I do think because I was working with Scott Stifler at, um, he would bring me and my colleagues in to uh, perform at a Collective Unconscious, mm-hmm. that there's a good chance that I met you or saw you perform there. In um, the mid aughts in the probably in the that would have been the mid to late 90s oh geez but you know because before i moved to new york in 2003 i would pop in every now and then with scott so it's a kind of thing where i I bet you anything like i remember he brought us in for a christmas show and we wrote this ridiculous um (laughs) was mrs claus's xmas of christmas bondage sketch and it was me and my friend buffy and she was um she was the elf, and I was Mrs. Claus, and I kept on making her wear ugly sweaters. And ah. she was like, no, mistress, no. Anyway, Scott Stifler, shout out. Hey, shout hey. out. Woohoo! Mm-hmm. Um, I, what I do remember, though, is I remember you were running a storytelling show at a place in Sunset Park called the Coraline Cafe. Mm. And this was in 2007. I, yeah. used to, I used to go to it with our mutual friend, H.R. Britton, who now, who had moved to Boston right. and now lives in, like, Wisconsin. So maybe I met you the year before because I only started doing storytelling 
um, I, I was doing storytelling for less than a year when I started that mm. show. Okay, so, so we probably met in 2006. We figured it out! All right. Yay! <laughs> One of the things I remember after, um, I guess, or initially when I was going to the, to the Coraline Cafe was that I was at the tail end of my Carmen Mafungo career as the Lower East Side's one and only Latin lady with stuff on her head. And I had been emceeing burlesque shows right. for about five or six years by the time I met you. Yeah. And I found out that you did burlesque also. Yeah. And then you did burlesque and storytelling. Right. And the man who is now your husband, Mr. Handsome Brad Lawrence, yes. was also in, into that as well. So I remember saying, oh, well, this is great. We're the only two people that are doing storytelling and burlesque, which yeah. means we're both smart and we're good looking. There you go. <laughs> yes. And, and at this point, I don't really think there is a lot of crossover there was a while there where there was a lot of crossover yes but that's kind of disappeared that's kind of disappeared because i think the show that did that which was peter aguero's btk show he had two it was btk and also uh i think he called it bear um and bear was dark stories with burlesque sort of like bear your soul um but he was producing both of those anyway let's get back to you so where are you from i'm from boston mm. mass that's the big Boston connection. There's, I know so many performers that yeah. came from that area. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people, a lot of people from my neighborhood uh, went on to become really well-known artists. Well, right now, I want to fo focus on you. So you grew up in, in Newton, like born, raised there until, yeah. you, until you left to pursue your Cindiness. Right. Okay, so did you come from an artist-oriented or education-oriented family? Mm, yes and no. It's my parents were not necessarily supportive, but there are three artists in the family. So. Are your parents immigrants? Uh, no, they are second generation. So and where did the grandparents or great-grandparents come from? Uh, Russia. And my mother... Like Russia, Russia? Yeah, I mean, it's Russian-Jewish. I know on my mother's side, there's also Hungarian and Latvian. Hmm. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's, my grandfather was blonde hair with blue eyes, but he was Jewish. And so I know that he was, uh, I think Hungarian and Latvian are on his side. And then my grandmother was pure Russian. So, um, so you, ha you do have three artists in your family. Yeah, my sister is, um, she went to college for arts education. Uh, she is an oil painter and a sculptor and does macrame. Uh, was an art teacher for years, and then uh, her second passion was teaching horseback riding, or just being on horses, and now she teaches horseback riding for a living. Um, wow. Which, but she's still very creative, so she's still very crafty and will do all sorts of little projects. Um, but she is not a career artist, she's more of a hobby artist. And then my brother Dick is uh, a fine artist, um, who that really is his first passion and right now for a living he's a janitor at the Brookline school system and then he's able to go home and focus on his, his art. So three artists out of the same family. Yeah. So then is but it... I'm the only performer. But you're the only performer. Yeah. Right. But um, so I guess would it be correct to say that you three were encouraged as children to explore the arts? No. Wow. So all three of you were rebels? Yes. Are you the youngest? And actually the one who's not an artist uh, went to the Harley Davidson School of Mechanics. So we all rebelled. Oh! We all, it was a family of rebels. Family of rebels. Yes. That's awesome. Are you the youngest? I am the youngest. Mm -hmm. So um, 
did, were you the kind of kid that ran around the house with a hairbrush singing? Did you write plays? Did you oh. do, like puppet things? Yes, 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 and yes. My, me and my best friend, we put on shows for our parents, and our material of choice was television commercials. So um, from the golden age of the 1970s. Oh man, yes. <laughs> and it would be McDonald's is your kind of place. Oh my God, it's just a happy place. Right? <laughs> there was that, and then uh, there was a jingle for uh, Channel Four. Um, we're for good old Cape Cod. We're for old Harvard Yard. So it's like it would just be commercials. We would just put on like one commercial after another, and I, our poor parents had to watch this. Thing. Uh, well, how was it received? Like, was it like, wow, this is pretty good they, or very nice, dear? They would sit and watch us. Good, wow. bl- got her parents and my parents would all sit and watch our ridiculous commercials. So did you carry on your love for performing in, in school? Were you a member of like any drama clubs or oh, anything like that? Here's my trajectory and the trajectory is I knew that I wanted to be a movie star. Ah, you know, that, okay. That, like I didn't know what else to call it so I wanted to be a movie star and that started when I was probably five. Like wow. whenever I, if I watched, um, if I watched um, Wizard of Oz or I watched, um, what's it called? Uh, um, 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 Cinderella. I had to like put on my tutu from ballet school. Like you, I had to dress for these occasions and dance with them. And then I would start, you know, if I had a favorite TV show, I would attempt my best to choose a character and act along. Even if I didn't know what the episode was, you know, I would watch TV in the basement where I could play pretend along with whatever I was watching. And I knew I wanted to be on TV and I wanted to be a movie star. And it was mostly so I could play pretend for a living so it wasn't about I want to be fabulous and famous and uh, I wanted the attention I wanted to play pretend for a living Um, I was raised with an entire collection of incredibly unsupportive arts teachers Wow! Um, to the point where um, I actually think that I have a lot of resilience and I think that I I developed that resilience between a cross of my parents saying no, my teachers telling me literally I had no talent, and my brother Dick, who is the fine artist, saying, um, you got to pursue your dreams. So anytime I got discouraged, my older brother would remind me, you got to pursue your dreams. When I had people telling me I had no talent, he would say things like, you're, you're too young for anybody to, like, like they're teachers, they're supposed to teach you. And so I was basically told at age seven or eight, I, 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 was, I didn't have that magical it. You're either born with it or you're not. I finally managed to get involved with a theater arts program that anyone who auditioned got into. Which you uh, high, was called you high school by this time? No, this was junior high. It was called Beginnings, and it was run by a guy who I really need to look up because I owe a lot of gratitude to him, and his name was um, Peter Sklar, and he, he still teaches young people. In fact, I found his website, and it's all about teaching young people to perform. Basically, with this kind of group, it's like as you got older, you know, maybe whatever was blocking you would fade away. And so by the time I was in high school, I was in this position. I was a recovering bullied kid. Like, so I, I wasn't very popular. And all the kids thought I was a weirdo. But I knew what I wanted. And my brother said, this is what you need to do. God bless him. He said, you need to, when you get to high school, you need to go up to the high school drama teacher. And you need to explain to him, this is what I want to do for a career. And I know a lot of people want to do drama in school, but you should know who I am because I want to do this as a career, not as a hobby. 
<laughs> and so we did this role play thing. And then I got, I knocked on his door. He answered his door. I gave him a little spiel that I had role played with my brother. And from that moment on, this guy hated my guts. Wow. And actually he said to me when we were older, the reason why the two of us did not get along was the fact that I reminded him too much of himself when he was my age. And the thought is, who says that to a child? I know. But terrible. the thing is, is um, he wouldn't cast me. So I'm in high school wanting to be an actress, and the one person who's sort of in charge of everything is refusing to cast me. So my brother, God bless him, he helped me find acting classes for adults in, in Boston. And I just jumped over the heads of... Um, the drama teachers in high school and started taking professional acting classes when I was 14. Wow, so your brother was really a champion for you, huh? Yeah, and it's That's the kind amazing. of thing where I had enough adults saying to me, this teacher's crazy, that I, I had very little respect for this teacher. Um, you know, who says this to a kid? Yeah, well, and that's, that's the cruelest stage of life also because right. the people that generally do well in high school mm -hmm. in that way. I'm not talking about academically, right. but the people that win the popularity contest right. or the ones that are lauded and the people that everyone else, the, the grown-ups think are going to go far are the ones that basically their life is over the day they get their diploma. Yeah. It's the, the it's weirdos. The ones that, it's the, the weirdos. weirdos. It's the ones that have to struggle. And yeah. it's the kind of thing I remember him saying to me once, man, if I could just get your drive and Lisa Miller's talent, I'd have something there. I'd have a real actress. Like he actively put me down Ugh. for my ability and so the thing is is that then I would do the stuff in the acting class with the adults and the and the acting class and the adults I was fine so there was this understand like I found this supportive environment mm. and I took classes with um the lyric stage all the way through high school and that's how I got into Emerson College wow so you got to Emerson where a lot of which spawned a lot 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 of performers right off the top of my head people that I can think of that went there are uh the comedian Eddie Brill mm -hmm. I knew uh, Eddie. Scott Stifler who yeah. is now who was a, a performer on the Lower East Side in the, yeah. in the 90s and now he's an editor of uh, the New York Villager and Chelsea yeah. Now Dennis Leary was one of my writing teachers wow yeah yeah, a lot yeah. of talent came out of Emerson. Yeah, Emerson was big on comedy, and it was uh, teaming up with the stand-up comics who were teaching there um, were the ones who I really connected with. And so I joined a comedy troupe there, and I was much more interested in writing my own material um, and being part of the sketch comedy troops than I was in being in, you know, the classic dramas or the Shakespeare or things like that. And so that sort of... I'd already started writing my own stuff when I was in the adult acting classes um, because the teacher there believed one of the ways to help you really find your voice was to write your own material. So I'd already experienced that and I'd already written things that in hindsight at age 16 were pretty good. And so then I got into the comedy troops, which I think um, really solidified the trajectory I was going on and because all of my favorite teachers were stand-ups, I immediately you know, became a stand-up. And a lot of this was based on the fact that I got an HBO special when I was 19 years old. Wow. Yeah. Damn. So it was, I was at Emerson. Damn. And I, Damn. Was, I was auditioning and I wasn't getting cast. And part of it is I was terrible at auditioning. I was very nervous. I was very scared. Then they were like, well, that's very common for, for freshmen. Don't worry about it. But what you should do, just keep auditioning uh, until you stop getting nervous. So I'd audition for everything, not to get cast, but simply 
to experience auditioning. And then a sign goes up for uh, HBO on campus, hosted by Joe Piscopo, Catch a Rising Star produces it. Uh, so, so you think you're funny, audition for the next, the future kings and queens of comedy. And I remember my roommate, God bless, was trying to like be supportive and she said, they want stand-ups and you're not a stand-up. And I'm like, I don't care if I get in or not. I just want to audition. She goes, but you're going to get embarrassed and then you're, you know, you'll come home crying. And she, she was like so um, adamant that I was making a poor choice that I ended up going to an older um, student who I had a bit of a crush on because he was always supportive. And I was like, I want to audition for that HBO thing. My roommate says I shouldn't. What should I do? And he was like, you should be true to yourself and do what you want. Uh, and he came out of the closet the following year. So based on the advice of the closeted homosexual, uh, <laughs> I ended up auditioning for HBO on campus. And I get there. It's on the BC campus. It's a lecture hall. It is packed to the brim. People standing room only, like two to 300 people absolutely packed and so uh i get um in there and the like i'm beginning to i'm watching one stand up after another and i'm just like oh my god my roommate was right i'm in the wrong place and then i look and they're videotaping it and of course the person videotaping it is her boyfriend so it's like this whole idea of like nobody will know me there's somebody who knows me so i'm thinking like maybe i should just bail and then i'm thinking well the worst thing that can happen is i could bail and then he would tell my roommate and then i would have to like totally be embarrassed so fuck it i'm doing it and i get up there and i launch into my first line and it gets a laugh and then it launches into the second line and it gets an even bigger laugh and um these people totally understood what I was doing. I think they related to like the whole, like the piece is, is kind of a commentary on auditioning. And I think that the kids could relate to it. All I know is that when I got off that stage, like uh, there were rolling laughters. Like I had to pause for the first time in my life. Like I, I killed it. I was the shy kid who had performed this maybe at most for 20 people and gotten some polite laughs. And I friggin' killed this room. And when it was done, the whole audience went, ah! And then I was rushed by the producers, and who are you? And and how old are you? And did you write that? And I'm like, yeah, I wrote it. And they're like, you're 18, and you wrote that. Yeah. And I booked an HBO special. So Cindy the movie star became Cindy the comedian. Right. And so because of that, and they were just like, um, they were adamant like you know you you're really really gifted and was mostly on the writing you know and it was this thing but like coming from this background with this with all of these people who had told me I had no talent to suddenly be told by actual real producers that you have this ability and eventually you know they overcast the thing and people got edited and I got edited but they had taken me to all these comedy clubs to warm it up and I had killed at all of the comedy clubs and so whether I made it to tv or not um, you could not, after that moment, tell me I didn't have talent. Because the producers of Catch a Rising Star, and this is how he said to me, so <laughs> you could tell I was really shy, and I'm in the meeting with the two producers, and one of them says to me, um, you got it. So that it, that it that everyone talks about, I was told I had it. You got it. You know, and you know how I know you got it? Because this guy, this guy, and he points to his, his uh, colleague. This guy says you, you have it. And you know who he is? He's the guy who discovered Pat Benatar. Wow. And so Pat I, Benatar was a big deal I, back I then. She was. And I had as much it as Pat Benatar. Wow. And that, yeah. So there you go, Pat Benatar. You and me, we both Pat got Benatar. it. Pat Benatar. So, so that's, 
But that was that was when I finally started having confidence in myself, and, and then from was, there it was more a matter of was that the beginnings of you writing for yourself. Yeah, yeah. And so when you graduated Emerson, did you decide I'm going to come to New York because that's the place to be, or did you? No, I um, graduated Emerson and got into um, dinner theater for murder mysteries, which was a big thing at the time, and it was super fun, um, and it was. You know, the, the scripts were written by sketch comedy uh, people. So the, the scripts were fun, and there was a lot of improv to be had. And it was actually, um, you know, granted it was the mid-'80s, but I was making, um, like, 75 or $80 a show. And so if we had two shows in one night, that's 100 That's so nice money. It's nice money. So I was making my full living doing murder mysteries for, I want to say, five years out of college. So you were a self-sustaining actress right out of college. Uh, within a year. Within a year. Within That's a year. fantastic. Yeah. Um, there was a point where I was making so much... I was making my full living as a performer. I was watching people from the Boston comedy scene move to L.A. and do really well for themselves. Like, you know, people like Dennis and people like Janine Garofalo. And my thought was like, well, if they can do it, maybe I can do it. And so I moved to L.A., Oh. Um, but I moved to L.A. without a union card, without any kind of management. Not that anybody told me to. I was no longer doing stand-up, and I floundered there for three years. And um, eventually, it was it was mostly a sense of humor thing. It was, I'm very snarky. I'm very dry. And it's not... It, I think things have changed now, especially where L.A. is the podcast capital of the world. But when I was there, snarky, dry, sarcastic, nobody understood it. And so it's like I ceased to be funny for the three years I was there, and I would come home to perform uh, in the Boston area. I had started an all-women comedy troupe before I'd left, and I'd come home once a year or twice a year to perform for them, and I always had a ball, and then I'd go back to L.A., and nobody got my humor again. And it was like, why am I here? Were you auditioning at all? Um, a little bit, but getting auditions was so hard. Wow. You know? How were you sustaining yourself to live? I was to wait, live? waiting on tables. Um, so the quintessential um, L.A. girl comes out to be a movie star, yeah, waits on tables and struggles. Yeah, and it's um, I did get onto um, some softcore um, light pornography on, on Showtime called Compromising Situations. Oh, yes. Com- that was a very popular show in the early 90s yes, and I, mid-90s. I starred in one episode and was featured in four. Ooh. Mm. So I did do that, and I thought that that was going to launch me into something new, but there was a sleazy element to that show, and there was just a lot of... Like, I didn't succumb to the casting couch stuff, but there was a lot of offers for casting couch stuff, and there was a certain point where it just... It felt it felt too dirty. So it's like the place where I actually thought this is where I'm gonna this is where I'm gonna launch from became a place that I don't I don't wanna work for them anymore. And so I moved back to Boston with my tail between my legs. It's like I went there to make it in show business, I have failed. Where do I go from here? If I'm going to have Boston be my base, what do I do? And this is the mid-90s at this point? Yeah, and it was just like, well, what do you do is you just do the stuff that matters to you. Why? And it's like my, I stopped wanting to be perhaps a movie star and more wanted to be an artist that did things that meant something to me. And that was a shift. And then the final shift came with I wanted to be an artist for a living so I was doing a little bit. Of, I went back to the murder mysteries. So I'm doing a little bit of murder mysteries. I'm doing a little bit of commercials. I'm doing a little bit of industrial training films. I'm really struggling to make a living. And there's a point where nothing coming out of my mouth is inspiring. And it's like, well, maybe I don't need to do this for a living. 
Is this maybe what? it's mostly about being inspired. At which point I started writing my solo shows. And then it was this thing of, you know what? I don't need to be a movie star. That was a dream I created for myself when I didn't know the word for artist or performing artist. What I do need to do is have what comes out of my mouth be something I'm proud of. And that changed everything. I eventually uh, kind of stopped auditioning for other people's work and was just like, I'm just going to produce my own stuff. So what The name of your first show was Greetings from Hollywood. Oh, it was all okay. stories about living in L.A. Uh, but the, there was a review that said more, more warmth and charm than I knew this performer was capable of. And it's because, well, there aren't good roles for women. Like, I'm a, I'm a pretty compassionate person. You're doing a murder mystery, you're making fun of people dying. Like, you know, and it's the kind of thing where those were fun, but there's no warmth there, there's no compassion there. Well, just the solo shows that you did in Boston got you a bit of fame. Yeah. Um, not, did you go to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival with Greetings from Hollywood, or was it the yeah, second it was, show? It was Greetings from Hollywood, which... Um, you know, it, it, it covered the soft porn story, um, and then it covered, I had a dear friend who committed suicide um, quite suddenly, so it was the story about the after, you know, the suicide and the aftermath of it. And then um, there was just a story of just feeling lost. And so that, it was an, kind of like an onion layer. It's like each story had similar characters. So, But that was the first show. So I performed it in Boston, got great reviews, which brought out a CNN film crew that happened to be in town doing a story on old Ironsides, the boat. Uh, but they were looking for fun things to do. And so I ended up with a CNN piece, which brought in um, Gene Siskel from Siskel and Ebert, who oh, called wow. me up and gave me a thumbs up over the phone. And you got a thumbs up from yeah, thumbs. We, wow. and, and we ended up the show was selling out, and we extended it, and then I brought it to the New York Fringe, and it like that show for some reason really hit at a time where it had messages people wanted to hear, or actually it asked questions that nobody was asking. So, and this was in what year? Ninety six no. and ninety seven. But that one I eventually brought to Edinburgh, and Edinburgh had the same experience. So at that time, were there a lot of women doing solo work? In Edinburgh? There was a lot of solo work going on, um, but a lot of it had an activist feel. Mm. Oh, wait, well, the 90s was very right girl. Yeah. A lot of like that, that, that new, that second wave of feminism. Yeah, so there was a, there were, where some of that stuff was absolutely fabulous. I mean, I've certainly seen stuff by Karen Finley that blew my mind. My show was not activism. And it was like basically, as I explained it to someone, um, life doesn't come with a training manual. When you get a letter from a friend that says, by the time you read this, I'll be dead, what do you do? And what, what do you do when you don't know what to do? And so the, the, the pieces were basically addressing the, the things in, that I was finding in life to be the most confusing and confounding and just asking the question why. It had no answers. And so it just really resonated with people as being incredibly authentic. What do you think was the tipping point of the catalyst to make you realize you needed to live in New York? I actually tried to move to New York in 98, and it all fell through. Like, everything fell through. Like, every attempt to get a, um, an apartment fell through. And um, at the time, I just decided the universe doesn't want me in New York. And then, actually, later that year, I ended up winning um, a grant for 
uh, $7,500 that had I moved to New York, I would no longer have been eligible for. The universe knew more than you did. So the universe knew more than I did. So that kept me in, in Boston for a couple more years, but there was always this sort of feeling that I need to move to a place where I'm not going to age out. And, you know, Boston is a different place now. So I, if there's anybody from listening from Boston might be saying, what is she talking about? But Things 20 years have, ago, 20 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah. So um, and the same with L.A., like L.A. is probably now nothing but snark, you know, but yeah. back then, they were, 20 years ago. Right. So um, I came to New York and uh, it took a few years. You know, I, I had all these solo shows, and so the first thing I did was just keep doing what I was doing, which was solo shows. Who did you fall in with to do um, this? It was Cheryl King. Cheryl King has been a great mentor yeah. for many, many yeah. solo, solo show performers. So I fell in with Cheryl King. She directed my first solo show. Um, but because of this, I wasn't doing anything else. I was, And I, at a certain point, I'm realizing that I'm doing the same thing I was doing in Boston, I'm just doing it in New York. So here I am with all of these other opportunities, but I have a habit of creating, you know, the solo shows, I'm never going to age out. I'm producing myself, you know. But it's this thing of, like, there was just this point of, why did I move here if I'm going to just keep doing the same thing I was Were doing? Were you still doing Fringes? Uh, yeah. And so, still, and st but you got many accolades from your Fringe show. Oh, God, yes. But it's it was this thing of, I'm not taking, I am, there are opportunities here I'm not taking. Mm. And so, um, after... My, I came into town and I, I created a solo show that was uh, one of the characters from the Murder Mysteries, um, which was Trixie, which I changed to Cherry, which is Cherry Pits. And I created a solo show for Cherry Pits. And, um, is after that moment the rest considered history? Because Cherry Pits has gone on to have yeah. a long and illustrious career that is still burgeoning today. Yeah, and actually Cherry was born in L.A., and Cherry was a reaction to the weirdness in L.A. Let's talk a little bit about Cherry Pitts. Who is so, she? Cherry Pitts is my alter ego. Um, she was based on the fact that the first time I saw the movie Singing in the Rain, it changed my life. Um, and there was a Gene Hagen played Lena Lamont, and I just thought this was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And Lena Lamont is, you know, and I can't stand it. I'm a young and rising star in the motion picture firmament. It said so in the paper. So I used to do impersonations of Lena Lamont. When I started doing the murder mysteries, uh, they had a dumb blonde. And I just did it in that character voice. So I was always doing that. It's sort of like the Brooklyn showgirl character voice. So I was always doing that. And then, uh, but the character for the murder mysteries was Trixie, and I did this a lot of interaction with the audience. So Trixie had all of these like little ways to play with the crowd. And so when I moved to LA, I decided to um, do this as stand up, and I started reading pulp, pulp fiction. Like, I, was, I wanted to create material for her, and I wanted to be old-fashioned lingo. So my favorite book for this was Call House Madam, which was a Madam's confessional from 1945. And it was full of great lines like, get this piece of information underneath your fingernails and scratch yourself. <laughs> so I would... People don't talk like that anymore. No, Sometimes so, I wish they would. So I had all of these books, and I would go through it with highlighters, and I would lift all of these ridiculous phrases. And so I created a stand-up routine for Cherry, using all of this stuff from the pulp books. Now, when Cherry got to New York, how did, how did she um, blossom? Well, I had done Cherry as a stand-up in L.A. a couple of times at a gay club, and she got, went over really well there. When I got to Boston, I tried it in stand-up, and nobody got the jokes. 
um, and I realized, oh, I guess you like you need to be a film buff or, mm. or a vintage buff to really get this. So like, she kind of just meandered, but I love the character. So I said, well, I'll just write a solo show for her. And I created this whole history and storyline for her with this fabulous uh, co-director and co-writer, Zach Stratus. I love Zach. And I created a solo show for her. And people kept on saying, this is very burlesque. And I'm like, yeah, I've already done the nudity. And nudity and me don't get along. But this was the time in New York where the neo-burlesque movement was just starting to really expand. Right. It had, and it I had was, been and going I had, on since the very early 2000s. Right. And I had a very closed mind about this. And I was like, nope, I don't do nudity. I don't do it. Nope. You know, and I just had nothing but like trauma and scars from my experience at the, at the, on the soft porn set. And so I created the solo show. It went over well in New York. And then I brought it to Edinburgh, and uh, none of the jokes went over. And I had 25 shows in 25 days in a place where nobody got my jokes. And it was one of the most painful experiences. And I had spent all of this money uh, to produce the show, because Edinburgh is expensive. And I did not, like, I had show, shows where nobody showed. So I came home in so much debt that there was no money to pay for a director there was no money to produce another show and I was just like I'm gonna have to look at what I can do um, on my own and uh, from there that's what's led to the burlesque which um, the thing that actually opened me up to it was um, I was trying to find a home for cherry and then I got diagnosed with a with a BRCA2 genetic mutation, the breast cancer gene. And the doctors started telling me that I needed a preventative mastectomy. And suddenly I wanted to get on stage and flash my boobs. So um, that's like, that was the thing. I was like, well, maybe I will do this for less since everybody's telling me I should do it. Because you might not have your boobs much longer. Oh yeah. my God. So but that's what I was like, screw it. I'm going to try this. Uh, for anybody listening who has had a preventative mastectomy, I totally support your choices. But uh, for me, it was not the thing to do. And um, so that just sort of like I came back and I had no, uh, no way to make a living. And I, had, I think I had auditioned for the world famous bomb right before I left for Edinburgh. I remember. And I, I She's did, still doing stuff. Yeah. And I did an open mic with her and I, and I had a great time. And I was like, oh, this is different. So when I came back, I just started, you know, con I started hanging out at burlesque shows and realizing this is not the same as the exploitive stuff I'm used to. And I started saying to people, hey, if I want to get on stage, and that's what led to burlesque. In the meantime, I didn't have the money to pay for a director. I didn't have money to do any of that stuff. And the you know other places that weren't pay to play was there were all these storytelling shows in New York. So I was like, well, I'm going to jump into the storytelling thing as well. And it was the best thing ever to not have any money because it forced me to socialize with other people and it forced me to find opportunities to perform and that is really what launched my career in New York were these two scenes where I didn't have to pay to play and you found mm -hmm. through luck or the universe two of the most supportive performance scenes at that time yes because in the early yes. to mid aughts burlesque was Full of wonderful women. I remember world, fam world famous Bob at Rafifi uh, oh, taking Rafifi. over from this Swedish woman named Inga or something like that. And Rafifi on 11th Street yeah. was just a mecca of 
that amazing the beginning stuff. of burlesque. I mean, I, uh, Julie Atlas Muse, um, mm-hmm. Joe Boobs, mm-hmm. Dirty Martini, mm-hmm. Little Brooklyn, Creamy Stevens, mm-hmm. Peekaboo Point, mm-hmm. uh, Gigi Lafon, Nasty Canasta, uh, Nasty Canasta. Yeah. and you you name. I, and then people, if I didn't name you, I'm sorry, but um, we don't have that, that much time. <laughs> but it was so many lovely, lovely, lovely supportive women. Yeah. And the beginnings of the, and the, the, well, the storytelling had already started. The Moth had already been in New York City about five or six years by then. But the storytelling slams at the New Yorican, which were once a month then, were also full of really supportive yeah. people like Andy Christie yeah. and Cindy Chupak and Michaela Murphy. And yeah, and it was the weirdest thing is I did burlesque and I immediately had somebody saying, I'm opening a venue. Do you want to produce a burlesque show? And I'm like, I've, I've only just started that. Yeah, but you know how to produce. Well, yeah, I do. So produce burlesque shows. So I, I it was like, okay. And then I came up with the name Hotsy Totsy. And uh, I produced a few shows on my own, but I didn't know enough of the people to really um, cast it. And the person who I met at the burlesque shows who seemed to know everything was Joe the Shark. And so I was like, you know, he was like, you're casting the same people over and over and over again. I'm like, I don't know anybody else. Do you want to co-produce with me? And he went, yeah. I'm like, because you know everybody you can cast for me. So that, he joined it, and that was the alchemy that made everything possible. And that's about 10 years ago? That was, yeah, this is our 10-year anniversary. The same thing happened with storytelling. I was a regular at a bar, and they were like, oh, do you want to produce a storytelling night here? And I'm like, I just started doing it. Yeah, but you produce all this stuff. You know what you're doing. So it's like these things fell in my lap. And neither was like this. It wasn't like Broadway fell in my lap. It was like a back room of a bar kept falling in my lap. But it still it was the culmination of everything that you had learned up until that point that yeah. led you to be able to take what you were being offered and go, yeah, I can, I can do that. It. Yeah, so I, I, I that. started producing my own storytelling night, and I uh, started producing my own burlesque show within a year of doing burlesque. And then I met Brad at a Halloween party where I was uh, my second night ever go-go dancing in my life. And uh, he showed up wearing a dress and he is not the kind of man who should ever wear a dress and I was making fun of him all night like telling him he was the ugliest woman I'd ever seen and I meant that in the best possible he sense makes a, he makes a terrible woman he makes a beautiful man yes um, and he kept on saying oh I'm beautiful and we just started cracking each other up and then um, I also told him I did storytelling and he was like oh I'm thinking about doing that because he had seen The Moth when it was a TV show so he was like, maybe that storytelling thing would be a place to go. Maybe I should write a solo show. And then he met me, and it's like, I'm producing a storytelling show, and I've produced five solo shows. And he was like, oh, my God, that's what I want to do. And I'm like, oh, my God, I know how to advise you. And oh, my God, the universe brought you together. Right. And so, you know, it was obvious that we were dancing around the same scenes for a couple of months when we met. Um, like, I think he had gone to a couple of storytelling shows. Um, but we would have met within six months, regardless, because we were dancing around the same things. But he wouldn't have been wearing a dress. He would not have been. <laughs> now, the first time, first time oh, I saw him, he came to my storytelling show, and I had no idea who he was, because he was not in a dress, and he didn't have a wig on. And all ah. I know is this incredibly handsome guy shows up, and I'm thinking, who is he? And he walks over to me and goes, hi. And I'm just like... And he's like, we've met. I have blonde wig, dress, sneakers. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I, like, we already had a date set up. And then I'm just like, I would have been so intimidated by this guy had I known what he really was. How funny is that? It's like real life, man. So in the 10 years since then, you've gone 
on to become one of the New York City's premier burlesque producers. But I just want to make a shout out, as full disclosure, Carmen Mafongo did appear on Hasi Tasi yes, towards did. the end of her of her uh, tenure as burlesque, and it was one of the most fun shows I ever did. Yeah, you were adorable. Aww, I loved it. Oh, thank you. So storytelling for you was actually also a really great um, trajectory because you became a darling of the moth, you became a darling of the liar show, and so many other shows, and then that also led you to becoming a teaching artist. Yeah, it's, well, with the moth, um, I heard early on that they were looking for teaching artists to work with, with uh, mostly with kids and community, and I was like, yeah, that'd actually be a really nice way to give back, and so I volunteered for their teaching program. Um, and by surprise, discovered that I like teaching almost as much as I like performing. And so, um, you know, there were just, there was a couple of years there where my most inspiring moments were teaching for the moth. And I learned everything about teaching that I know from working with the moth and people like Larry Rosen and Michaela Bly and just like all of the amazing people there. And so, um, and Peter Guerrero, and uh, so at a certain point, there was this thing of I was getting burnt out with waiting on tables and bartending, um, mostly because bar owners tend to be um, alcoholics and drug addicts, and there was just like a lot of crazy at the bars, and a lot of uh, bar fights, and it's just a lot of late nights, and I'm like, you know what, I'm... I, I'm done with the bar fights and I'm done with the late nights and I'm done with living at the whim of a person who I know is drunk off their butt. Because you had been supporting yourself as a bartender right. for many so years. So there was a point where I remember saying to Brad, do you think maybe I could teach more and make a transition? He's like, I don't know. And so uh, I was thinking about it. Um, I mentioned it to a few people. That led me to working for Story Studio and Kevin Allison. And, um, and Risk. And that led to, there was a point where they needed um, a admin person and a story coach for Risk. And so working for Story Studio led to that. And now I really, truly live the dream. I'm working for uh, Story Studio and Risk almost full time. Uh, I do other things, but they're my key bread and butter. I connect with people being authentic every single friggin' day. I like people to be their true selves. And storytelling is an art form that allows that like no other. And burlesque is almost the flip side of that because we all got a certain amount of outrageous and crazy in us. It's the plain pretend. And it's the plain pretend. And it's the burlesque is it, it, it allows me to go online and buy the craziest costumes and cover myself in glitter and encourage other people to do the same. And so it's... It's our burlesque personas are are all our alter egos, yes. but are yes. still authentically, authentically us. And you're absolutely right that it's two sides of the same coin. And I, too, think that the burlesque community and the storytelling community, and I've been in a lot of communities, let me tell you, but those are the, the two that I actually hold the most dear also. Yeah. Oh, yeah. neat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I love my art stars. No no disrespect to my art because I would not have Karma Mafungo were it not for the art stars. But mm. burlesque and storytelling, yeah. we're special. <laughs> you know, Cindy, I always um, ask someone to tell a story during the interview, but, like, your this interview has been, like, a series of amazing stories. So um, I just want to ask you, if people want to find out more about your fabulousness, about Hatsi Tatsi, about Story Studio, about anything else that you or Brad are doing, where, where can they go? Oh, so many places. So hotsytotsyburlesque.com uh, is okay. for the burlesque. Um, I, have a, I have a blog that could be 
better curated, but it's called uh, heroicsinhotpants.com, and there's usually a list of everything I'm doing there. Um, for if you wanted to take a class with me, that's through storystudio.org, and then risk-show.com. Cindy, you are truly a Wonder Woman, and I <laughs> wish we had been able to talk about your Wonder Woman show, but just look her up. Google her. Find her on Facebook. Like her on Twitter. Go find, <laughs> find Cindy Freeman because she is fabulous! So, Cindy, I ask this question of everyone when we get to uh, the end of our chat time together. Mm -hmm. If you had any words of wisdom for the young person who wants to be something more than what the constraints of their, either their background or where they live or what their teachers are thinking that they're capable of, sure. what would you tell this child? Uh, first of all, somebody has to be a raving success because they exist, so it might as well be you. You know, there's no reason why it can't be you. That's number one. Number two, whatever the dream is, pursue it. Um, you might find that you change it along the way, but pursue whatever that dream is in the moment until something better comes along. But be open to the better thing. It's like, it's like a rose blossom. It's like uh, as it opens up, there's better and better inside. Uh, but mostly, like never allow anybody to tell you if you have talent or not. The thing is, is that if you have a dream and that dream is in you, that in itself is proof that you have talent because that passion, if it's cultivated, will eventually come out. Absolutely, come out. because that little seed that is planted in you is the clue that you are of the artist tribe. Cindy, yeah. wise words from a wise woman. Oh. Thank you so much for being on Fish Out of Agua. It was fun. Okay, we're going to end with a hug on the air because we always end with a hug on the air. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> You better run, you better hide, you better leave.
And we are back with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Pat Benatar with You Better Run from her Crimes of Passion album in 1980, another of Cindy's song picks. And kids, that's our show. You have been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. I do have one announcement to make. I would love everybody listening to this to vote for Radio Free Brooklyn to go to South by Southwest 2019 to present in Pirate Radio version 3.0. Every version counts. And to vote, just go to http colon forward slash forward slash rfb dot nyc forward slash sxsw. Or you could go to panelpicker.sxsw.com and search for Radio Free Brooklyn. And we're going to close with uh, the last of Cindy's picks from Badfinger. The song is called Day After Day from their Straight Up album in 1971. Stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you next week. Woohoo!